0: This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 20, for broadcast on the 8th of March, 2019. Coming up on Space Time... Crew Dragon 2 successfully docks to the International Space Station... Virgin Galactic edges closer to space... And Russia announces a huge manned lunar space program. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. SpaceX's new Crew Dragon 2 capsule has successfully docked with the International Space Station, completing the first part of its historic Demonstration 1 test flight. The docking with the orbiting outpost Harmony module is seen as a crucial test in NASA's plans to again transport astronauts to the space station from American soil, instead of relying on lifts aboard Russian Soyuz rockets from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. The last American orbital manned mission was STS-135 way back in 2011, the final flight of the space shuttle Atlantis before the mothballing of America's space shuttle fleet. Crew Dragon 2 tested its autonomous docking system during the final approach to the space station, moving forward and then backing off again, before finally being instructed to undertake the full automated docking maneuver.
1: Dragon spacecraft as it approaches the International Space Station for a planned
2: docking. And to put into perspective just how fast everything's moving, a commercial airplane usually cruises at about 550 miles per hour, takes about five hours to go from LA to New York City. If you were able to fly as fast as Dragon, you could cover that distance in just eight and a half minutes.
1: During this phase, mission operators configured the vehicle for on-orbit operations and Dragon executed a series of burns which gradually raised its orbit to align more closely with the ISS. A final co-elliptic burn, which started at about 9.59 p.m. here at local time in Hawthorne, placed Dragon into the same orbital plane of the ISS, about two and a half kilometers below and seven kilometers behind, which had then prepared it for its approach on autonomous docking maneuver.
2: This is Mission Control Houston. The Dragon spacecraft now just about... 3,000 meters away from the International Space Station. At this time, the International Space Station about to enter into an orbital nighttime 266 statute miles above the Earth uh, just south of Australia. At this point, Dragon has completed its approach initiation burn. We are now in integrated operations. A few more milestones to hit. Uh, in just under 8 minutes at this point, uh, we're looking for a mid-course burn, an approach initiation mid-course burn to look forward to. Not too long after that, we'll h- enter into uh, the 1,000 meter or kilometer range from the International
1: Space Station. Uh, Dragon is getting very close.
2: All right, and we just heard confirmation that Dragon is now inside of the keep out Sphere. Now again, the keep out Sphere is an imaginary circle around the International Space Station of about 200 meters.
3: Station Houston on one. Dragon is resuming approach to waypoint two. Monitor per step seven in one decimal one zero two. Dragon approach and retreat monitor. Dragon
1: is currently resuming its approach towards waypoint two. Dragon two in full light with its nose cone open soft-capture ring deployed. That ring is uh, extended above the hatch by six hexapod arms that are all attached to Dragon by springs. So that that will be the first part of Dragon to make contact with the ISS. When it does, those springs will uh, compress and absorb and dampen any of the relative velocity differences between the space station and Dragon. This soft-capture system was actually subjected to extensive testing and uh, the Six-Degree of Freedom Dynamic Test System at NASA Johnson. And uh, this was actually the very same system they used uh, to test other docking systems at NASA. so again, hey, Houston
3: in 1, 20 here. meter hold confirmed. Perform step 8 in 1.102 Dragon approach and retreat monitoring.
1: Right now, Dragon's flight computer is uh, using those Draco thrusters, firing the stabilized... Hey, uh, Houston stabilize and 1,
3: Dragon is resuming approach and is go for docking. Monitor per steps 9 and 10 in 1.102 Dragon approach and retreat monitoring. Station copies. Vehicle mode is approached to docking port. Primary range is decreasing. Vehicle is centered. Copy. All.
2: Getting good reports from Anne McLean there on board the International Space Station. Dragon is approaching. Everything in on the center and still looking good. So the crew is using that centerline camera on the Dragon spacecraft just to do all of their final monitoring of the vehicle. That international docking adapter. It's attached to a larger black piece of the station. That's a pressurized mating adapter, which is then attached to actually one of the modules. Uh, which is known as Node 2 and the Harmony, it's the Harmony module. So Dragon continuing to close in. The International
1: Docking Adapter. The IDA is a passive system, and uh, the Dragon contains all the active components of that docking system.
3: Range is 9.5 and decreasing. Vehicle is centered. Largest excursion observed is less than half a meter, less than half a degree.
1: All right, we're inside 10 meters. The very first part of Dragon that will make contact with the ISS is that soft capture ring. It's extended forward from the hatch of the Dragon right now. As soon as those pedals make contact, latching paws will engage and hold the pedals against the uh, opposite ones on the IDA, and contact pins will depress, and we should hear the call-out for soft capture achieved. Hands-off point. Copy. All right, so we're at that crew hands-off point.
2: That means we're about two meters away. Crew no, no longer sending commands. Dragons Doing
1: everything on its own. Soft
3: capture confirmed.
1: Uh, you can hear the cheers behind us at uh, SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California. We have confirmation of a soft capture of the Dragon spacecraft to the International Space Station. The Dragon's still moving around a little bit. That's the soft-capture ring is attached to Dragon by way of six arms that are all attached to springs that help dampen the motion, the difference in the relative velocities between the Dragon and the space station. And you're probably and hearing the some
3: cheers behind us. On. We can confirm hard capture is complete.
1: Hard capture complete. So news. That means that that's Congratulations
2: once again to a huge team around the world to make this possible.
1: Second set of rings was uh, fully fully retracted, and uh, fully actuated the, the success and of
3: now the entire now. teams around the world.
0: Crew Dragon 2 will remain docked to the space station until March 8, when it will depart and undertake the final portion of its test flight: the all-important deorbit, atmospheric reentry, and splashdown in the North Atlantic Ocean. If all goes to plan another test flight, this one to check out the launch abort system, would take place either next month or in June, with the first manned test flight taking place in July, with regular crew transfer flights, initially with four astronauts at a time, likely to begin before the end of the year. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Virgin Galactic is edged closer to space, while at the same time carrying a third crew member aboard its space plane VSS Unity for the first time. Spaceship Two took off as usual, mounted between the twin fuselages of its White Knight Two mothership from the Mojave Air and Spaceport just outside Los Angeles in California. The four-engine jet-powered White Knight Two took the spacecraft to an altitude of around 50,000 feet before releasing it.
2: Release, release, release. Fire. Fire.
0: Spaceship Two then ignited its rocket engine, pointed to the heavens, and climbed to a record apogee of almost 90 kilometres or 295,000 feet, just over 10 kilometres short of the 100-kilometre-high internationally recognised official start of space. The latest test flight comes just months after Unity reached the lower 80-kilometre-high US-recognised boundary of space for the first time. Hey, welcome to
4: Space Scotland. <laughs> Congrats to you.
5: Welcome to the club,
4: astronauts. <laughs> Thanks, Base. I, All like, right. I like this club.
0: The mission was the fifth rocket-powered test flight by Virgin Galactic in the skies above California during the current test campaign. As well as establishing a new altitude record for Spaceship 2, the flight also set a new speed record for Unity of Mach 3.04. Also, for the first time, Unity carried a three-person crew instead of just the usual two pilots. Virgin Galactic Chief Astronaut Instructor Beth Moses accompanied the pilots on the test flight in order to check out what future space tourists can expect to experience during their journeys, and also to act as mission specialist to monitor research payloads aboard the flight as part of NASA's Flight Opportunities Program.
3: Well, I was privileged to be the first cabin evaluator in Spaceship Two, VSS Unity. As the Chief Astronaut Instructor, I just performed the first in-flight cabin evaluation in space of what our customers will experience in flight. So it was a great day. Um, So the heart of the evaluation was obviously the in-space microgravity portion. So once the rocket motor cut off, the pilots cleared me to unstrapped from my seat. The first thing actually I did was start my stopwatch so I would know when to get back in my seat and then I unstrapped and did a slow egress to a window. Took a look at the beautiful clear 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 view out the window and then just to make sure I could safely strap back in and that there was no issue with the hardware I went ahead and strapped my lap belt back in. Once that was all done I unstrapped again and evaluated a different way to get out of the seat and then I evaluated a part of the cabin to see how it rotated around me and then I went out to evaluate the view you can get from Apogee out of the top windows, which was silent, and beautiful and clear. And I was quite happy to be near the cockpit with our pilots to celebrate Apogee. And we all sort of marveled at how magic it was. Then after Apogee, I proceeded with cabin evaluations. I took a look at the upside down view, kind of Spider-Manning along the ceiling to see what you could see doing that. And then took a glance at the back of the cabin and then headed back to my seat and evaluated how to get back in a seat and was strapped in for entry G. And interestingly, you could sort of see ice crystals right out the window and then the beautiful beautiful curvature of the Earth. It was so black in space and so clear and bright, especially with snow on the mountains. You could see the Pacific Ocean, see the southwestern United States. I felt like I was infinitely high. It was just beautiful. It was the most amazing thing. So, so, so clear.
0: After reaching Apogee and experiencing a few minutes of weightlessness, Unity began to re-enter the atmosphere at Mach 2.7, eventually gliding to a perfect runway landing back at the Mojave Airport. The mission has achieved several firsts for a commercial manned spaceflight, including the first time three people have flown in space aboard a commercial spaceship, the first time a non-pilot flew aboard a commercial spaceship into space, and the first time that a crew member has floated freely without restraints in space aboard a commercial spacecraft. The successful flight's good news for the more than 600 people who've already paid their 250000 US dollars, or at least put down a deposit, for one of Virgin Galactic's planned 90-minute suborbital tourist space flights. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley speaking with astronomer Dr Fred Watson.
4: Space tourism and Virgin Galactic has uh, just done a, a flight which has been historic for more than one reason. Obviously, it was a success and uh, very spectacular images on the BBC News website, if you want to look it up. But uh, something else extraordinary happened here and uh, it involved one of the astronauts.
6: Indeed, that's right. Let me read what he said when he came back down uh, and landed uh, back in the Mojave Desert.
4: Well, if you're going to quote him, better do the accent. That's what I was going to say.
6: That was <laughs> thrilling yet smooth and nicely controlled throughout with a view at the top of the Earth from space, which exceeded all our expectations. I'm sorry, Dave. Dave MacKay. <laughs> name. Really sorry. Probably that was really
4: good. <laughs> really good.
6: Yeah. I can, look, as an honorary Scotsman, uh, I can get away with that usually. <laughs>
4: and he <laughs> is the first ever Scottish astronaut
6: he is that's right as, he's, and as a consequence he's not, yeah he's from well up in uh, in the north of scotland from helmsdale which is way up in the highlands well, i mean
4: that's not an achievement because he's close enough to walk <laughs> that's right
6: that's right so he's the first scottish-born pilot to travel to space and by space uh, what virgin means is i think they mean above 80 kilometers but mm. this time they've They've gone beyond that. There, um, Dave Mackay took the took the rocket plane up to 90 kilometres. Um, it looks as though it has been an absolutely perfectly successful trip, and that the footage that we've seen it shows these elated pilots taking the spacecraft up. I think what happens, Andrew, is is the rocket motor. So it's dropped from its um, mothership yep. at about 15 kilometres above the Earth, which is Forty thousand feet-ish, or something like that. I can't do the calculation. I'm sure, you will in a minute. Um, and it's dropped from that height, and and then they fire the rocket motor, which I think burns for about thirty or forty seconds, something like that, accelerating the spacecraft up to a speed that basically, once the rocket motor cuts out, it coasts the rest of the way up to the what's called the apogee the point furthest away from the center of the earth where the spacecraft turns around and starts coming back again and so for all that time when the rocket motor's not firing until the air brakes start on it on its way back down for all that time you're weightless and it's about four minutes i think the total time so a great experience and You know, seeing things like this, what's surprised me a bit or maybe encouraged me a bit, Andrew, is the fact that this, the report that we've seen on this is pretty low key, which is almost virgins saying, look, guys, this is getting pretty routine. We need to make a big splash about it because we're going to be doing this every day soon. So I think it's rather, uh, rather an interesting dynamic in the report.
4: Yes, indeed, Um, and one of the most spectacular spaceships I think I've ever seen. It's straight out of a science fiction uh, story, that thing. Um, The the craft is just beautifully winged. It's got a a single fuselage with a very pointy um, nose and it's got the portals, it's got the rocket engine, it's got the the fins and the wings. I mean, it looks like a... um, uh, an attack craft from an alien race i mean it looks amazing it's spectacular
6: it's definitely a spaceship isn't it
4: oh yeah uh, there's no no <laughs> denying it i mean that's what a spaceship should look like yeah it looks a bit different
6: when it's coming down because it folds in half <laughs> the the, um, the wing basically uh it's what's called a, a canting wing so it, it actually has a hinge all the way along it and the back half of it folds up almost at a right angle with the the line of the wing, to act as an air brake, mm. uh, And um, that clearly works very well.
4: Yes, indeed. Um, so where does this put uh, Virgin Galactic in the uh, in the race to put tourists in space? I mean, we, we've got a couple of entities working on this. This, yeah. this one sounds like it's put them in uh, a pretty good position.
6: I think that's right.
4: The th- great thing about
6: Virgin Galactic is they've been completely up front with all their pluses and minuses. They have taken us the whole way uh, even though for many years we've been hearing that the first commercial flights will be next year uh, i do think they have handled this with great care and done all they can to ensure the safety of their passengers and to make sure that what they're talking about is actually going to work and it's a you know it is a good reliable product so was this uh,
4: this basically a test run of what the tourists will actually uh, yeah, pretty experience well. Yeah, that's right. Okay.
6: And you just, you, I mean, basically, you go up and then you come down again. But but they're two hundred thousand dollars, which is it was the initial price for these. You get a bit more than that because yeah, I think you get a week of training and instruction and just finding out all there is to know about space tourism. And you probably get a few good meals and a couple of nice glasses of wine. I would imagine.
4: Yeah, you have to eat it all out of a tube, but it's still fun. <laughs> that's on the ground, not in
0: the in the Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. That's Professor Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. (music) Russia has announced plans for a major manned lunar exploration program, expected to put cosmonauts on the Moon by 2031, with a Russian lunar base operational by 2034. Moscow says the mission for the Russian Academy of Sciences will transport a heavy lunar rover capable of carrying astronauts. A second Russian mission to the lunar surface in 2032 will then test other vehicles designed to travel on the surface of the Moon. A third mission, slated for 2033, will see cosmonauts undertake long-distance journeys across the lunar landscape in order to conduct scientific research and test robotic systems. Then, in 2034, work will start on the construction of the first Russian lunar base. Moscow's announcement comes in the wake of Chinese plans to develop its own permanent base on the lunar surface in order to undertake mining operations. And there are also plans by the United States, Canada, Europe and Japan to jointly construct a Lunar Gateway orbital space station platform in 2026. Gateway would act as an orbital staging post for missions to the lunar surface. It would be placed in a highly elliptical halo orbit at the Earth-Moon-Lagrangian or L1 position, a place where the gravitational pull of the Earth and Moon balance each other out, allowing any spacecraft or station at that location to remain there, following the Moon as it orbits around the Earth. This orbit would also bring the lunar surface to within 1,500 kilometres of the Gateway Space Station every six lunar Earth days. time now to turn our eyes to the skies and check out the celestial sphere for march on SkyWatch, and happy new year well it would be if this was ancient mesopotamia or rome you see march was the first month of the new year going back to the earliest concept of celebrating new year's day at the time of the vernal equinox around 2000 bce the early roman calendar which had just 10 months also designated march the first as new year's day that ten-month year is still reflected today, with the name September or Septem being Latin for seven, October or Octo meaning eight, November or Novem nine, and December or Deci meaning ten. It wasn't really until the Gregorian calendar that January the 1st was marked as the start of the new year. But at the beginning, it was really mostly only Catholic countries that adopted it. Protestant nations only gradually moved across with, for example, the British not adopting the reformed calendar until 1752. Prior to that date, the British Empire and its American colonies celebrated New Year's Day on March the 25th. The astronomical highlight of the month is the March Equinox, which will this year take place at 8.58 on the morning of Thursday, March the 21st, Australian Eastern Daylight Time. That's 5.58pm in the evening of Wednesday, March the 20th, US Eastern Daylight Time and 2158 Greenwich Mean Time. For our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, it's of course the vernal equinox, meaning the start of spring. Or for those of us south of the equator, it's the autumnal equinox, meaning a move into autumn. The day marks the point in Earth's orbit around the Sun, when the planet's rotational axial tilt means the Sun will appear to rise and set exactly due east to anyone standing on the equator. And of course, it'll set exactly due west to anyone standing there. It means almost equal hours of darkness and light. In fact, the very word equinox is derived from the Latin, meaning aquaeus, or equal, and nox, meaning night. It all comes about because Earth's rotational axis is tilted at an angle of 23.4 degrees in relation to the ecliptic, the plane created by Earth's orbit around the Sun. That planetary axial tilt is pointed at the same position in the sky, regardless of Earth's orbital position around the Sun. On any other day of the year, either the northern or southern hemisphere, it tilted more towards the Sun. But on the two equinoxes, around March the 21st and September 23rd each year, the tilt of Earth's axis is directly perpendicular to the Sun's rays. The moment of the March equinox is also used to define the celestial coordinate system of right ascension and declination. In astronomy, the celestial coordinate system is the astronomical answer to the latitude and longitudinal coordinates used on Earth's surface. It's used to specify the positions of objects in three-dimensional space and the direction of objects on the celestial sphere, the imaginary globe surrounding the Earth. It lets scientists determine the position of celestial objects, such as satellites, planets, stars, galaxies, and so on. Right ascension, which uses the symbol alpha, is the angular distance measured eastwards along the celestial equator from the vernal equinox. On the celestial sphere, it's analogous to the terrestrial longitude. Declination, which is the symbol delta, measures an angle north or south of the celestial equator, so it's the celestial equivalent to terrestrial latitude. Okay, so what's happening up in the skies tonight? Well, marking the vernal equinox and setting in the west this time of year is one of the oldest recognized constellations in the heavens, Taurus the Bull, which was first named around 6,000 years ago. In Greek mythology, Taurus represents the king of gods, Zeus, as he lusted after King Egino's daughter, Europa, who was looking after a herd of cattle. Now, being a god with godlike powers, Zeus transformed himself into a powerful white bull so that he could get closer to the beautiful Europa. Once transformed into Taurus the bull, Zeus convinced Europa to climb on his back, and he then carried her off to the island of Crete. Taurus's head is represented by the dominant V-shaped grouping of stars. The bright reddish star is Aldebaran, an orange giant one and a half times the mass of the sun located about 65 light years away. It's the 14th brightest star in the night sky and the closest bright star to the point of the vernal equinox. In ancient Arabic, Aldebaran's name means the follower. That's because it appears to follow the seven sisters of the Pleiades open star cluster. It's also the first of four royal or guardian stars identified by the ancient Mesopotamians. Lying near Aldebaran is a V-shaped grouping of young newborn stars known as the Hyades. These are the nearest open star cluster to Earth, located just 153 light-years away. And just a reminder that March 14, that is 314 in American speak, marks the yearly celebration of the mathematical constant Pi. We all know Pi is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, but it's also an irrational number, meaning its decimal representation never ends and it never repeats. More than just the number, pi has important applications in astrophysics, in orbital mechanics, and in many other fields of astronomy. So far, pi has been calculated to over a trillion digits. And yes, there are lots of nerds out there who remember a great many of them. The current record for reciting pi is to over 70,000 digits. Imagine sitting next to that person at a dinner party. As for me, 3.14159 is about it. As well as Pi Day, March 14 also marks the birthday of a man I regard as the greatest scientist of all time, the great Professor Dr Albert Einstein. Someone many might consider on a similar scale is Jonathan Alley, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, who joins us now to continue our tour of the March night skies.
5: Well, g'day Stuart. Well, that's the sky in March. Well, we'll start with the Milky Way like we always do, which in the middle evening at this time of year is stretching from the southeast over to the northwest in the middle part of the evening. For us in the southern hemisphere, there are plenty of bright stars and constellations to see in the southern half of the sky. I mean, there always are, but, but this time of year is really good. There's the Southern Cross. It's sort of lying on its left-hand side, still down in the southeast, about halfway up from the horizon. Everyone likes to see the Southern Cross. It's actually a really small constellation. People expect to see this really big thing, but it's quite small. If you hold, I think your...
0: it's the smallest of all the constellations, isn't it? Yeah,
5: in terms of area in the sky, mm. it's the smallest in the sky. So if you if you sort of hold your hand or your arm straight out in front of you, make a fist, I mean that would cover up the uh, the Southern Cross. It's that small, really. But but the stars in it are quite bright, so it's quite noticeable. So yeah, that's down in the uh, the southeast, about halfway up from the horizon. The famous two pointer stars are below it. They're called the pointer stars because they, well, you draw a line from it, more or less points towards the southern cross. Don't know why you'd need to because the southern cross is pretty easy to find.
0: You can get confused with the false cross sometimes. That's why you always look for the pointer stars. There
5: is yeah, there's another uh, group of stars down there that's called the false cross and it's bigger. It's about twice the size of the southern cross. Um and the same sort of shape. And uh, yeah, you can that's why they call it the False Cross, I guess. One of those two pointer stars is Alpha Centauri, the system that the crew of the Jupiter two were trying to reach all those years ago with Doctor Smith and the robot and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the tri- they got they got lost on the way to Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star system to Earth. The
0: bubble-headed boobies.
5: That's what it was, wasn't it? Now, if you're gonna look, if you look straight up this time of year from the southern hemisphere and look a little bit to the west, you'll see the constellation Canis Major, which means the Greater Dog, and you'll see the bright star Sirius. That's the brightest star in our night sky, so this is a good time of year to see it. A little bit further to the northwest, and you'll find the unmistakable constellation uh, Orion the Hunter, dominated at either end by its bright stars, Rigel and Betelgeuse, with the hunter's belt of three stars running through the middle of it. It's over in the west now, and it's sort of starting to get low in the west as as the evenings get on. It's really a summer constellation, summer for us here in the southern hemisphere at least. So the fact that it's over in the west and getting lower and lower each night as the nights go on means summer is disappearing and we're heading uh, towards autumn and towards winter. Low down on the western horizon actually is a wedge of stars with a a reddish-coloured star at one corner. This is the head of the constellation Taurus, uh, and the the reddish star there is called Aldebaran. That's a really nice thing to see. If you've got nice clear skies, you can see this wedge shape of stars with this bright red star uh, called Aldebaran there. Over in the eastern half of the sky, looking in the other direction, it's pretty bare during the evening hours. Later in the night, though, the constellation Virgo uh, is up nice and high in this sort of bare area, but for amateur astronomers, those who've got backyard telescopes, uh, Virgo is nothing but bare. It's bare to the naked eye, but you get a telescope onto it and you can see lots and lots of galaxies, the famous galaxy cluster, called the Virgo cluster. You can see lots of deep sky things there with a bit of extra power to your eyes through a telescope.
0: That's one of the biggest clusters in our neck of the woods, isn't it? The Virgo cluster.
5: It certainly is, yeah. So it, it's one of these things where you, you won't see it with the naked eye, but uh, telescopes, yeah. And the bigger your telescope, the more you can see, yeah. You know, because the larger your telescope, the more light it can gather in. And, and it's not the magnification so much, it's the amount of faint light that the telescope is dragging in. Uh, they Photons. call these. Yeah, photons, they call these big telescope telescopes light buckets because they're just gathering up more light. So the, the, the analogy is if it's raining outside, you go outside with a tiny little bucket, it's only going to gather a certain amount of water. But if you get a big bucket, like big in diameter, um, you're going to catch more raindrops coming in. Same thing with a telescope, big light bucket will catch more faint photons coming in and, and that means that um, things that are faint will look brighter to you as you look through the telescope. Now, what about the planets? Well, we'll start with the innermost planet, Mercury. Um, it's visible very, very low on the western horizon during the early evening twilight, but it's going to be lost to view very soon by the middle of March. That's because it's moving in between us and the Sun. Astronomers call that inferior conjunction. Uh, but it's going to pop back into view towards the end of the month, but this time over on the eastern horizon before sunrise. Okay, so it swaps from one side to the other. Of the sky, and next month, April is going to be a good time uh, to see Mercury. In fact, the best time this year, I think it is. So uh, we'll talk about that next uh, next month. Uh, speaking of the sunrise, if if you are up and about early, you'll have noticed a very very bright light out to the east. Well, that's the planet Venus shining really brightly at a at a level that astronomers call magnitude minus four, which is really bright. You can't miss it. So uh, get up and have a look at uh, Venus. It's it's really really beautiful to see. You know, if you, if you're out in a really dark area out in the desert or something. You know, uh, Venus, when it's bright like that, can cast a shadow. On the ground oh wow yeah 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 it's it's if, if you're you know in a really dark spot where there's no other light around to um, illuminate things so that so the ground is dark, Venus is so bright that it will yeah cast a shadow so that's really quite amazing isn't it Mars is visible in the evening sky this month above the western horizon if you have a good clear sky you know no clouds around and and no pollution and that sort of thing. Take a look towards the end of March, out there in the the western evening sky, and you'll see that Mars is near a little group of stars. That group of stars is called the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters, which we've spoken about on the uh, the program before. It's going to look really really nice. And if you have a pair of binoculars or you can lay your hands on some, have a look at Mars next to this little cluster of stars. It's going to be really great because the stars have got a sort of a bluish tinge. They're not quite perfectly white. They've got a sort of a bluish tinge to them, and Mars is this ruddy, orangey red colour. So they look really beautiful by side. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing some photographs actually that people might think of that. Uh, what else are the planets? Well, the biggest planet in the solar system and, and the second brightest in, in the sky, only second only to Venus, is Jupiter. During March, you'll find Jupiter in the eastern half of the sky, but you've got to stay up pretty late because it's rising up over the horizon around about midnight at the beginning of the month. But by the end of the month, it'll be rising over the horizon about 10 p.m. Okay, so Jupiter is pretty easy to see as well. It, it's quite bright uh, over in that part of the sky particularly. There's no other bright stars around at the moment, so you shouldn't have any trouble um, identifying
0: Jupiter. And with a decent Back of our telescope, you'll get to see the four Galilean moons as well. Yep, which yeah, are which yep, are amazing yep. sights. It just it, it shows you that Jupiter really is a little solar system all by itself.
5: That's right. And when we say you'll be able to see the moons, we don't actually say say that you know you'll be able to see detail Craters on the surface are, yeah. of these moons. Yeah, you They're see these stops. little little dots of light of the, uh, the moons going around um, and there are four of them that are bright enough to be seen with small backyard telescopes but you might not see all four at the same time. Some might be around behind the planet maybe you'll see three on one side and one on the other or two on one side and two on the other because they all move around at different speeds. So if you watch them night after night it really is quite fascinating to see them moving. Put yourself in Galileo's shoes uh, all those hundreds of years ago when he first mm. met telescope the telescope and thought what on Earth is going on with, uh, no pun intended, what's, what on Earth is going on with Jupiter and um, sort of helped to kick off the scientific revolution by showing that the uh, the heavens aren't perfect at all. The, um, things move. Uh, what's left? Well, Saturn is the other planet. Um, Saturn also is a very late evening object. In fact, it's into the early morning. It's rising at about 1 a.m., Uh, in the early part of March. So Jupiter comes up first uh, around midnight or a little before, followed by Saturn about an hour later. And Saturn's quite bright too. It's uh, like a really intense little white, slightly yellow-looking star. But of course, it's not a star, it's a planet.
0: That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Garry, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStewartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world